This is G'day World 294, where I interview Gary Barker, co-host of TPN's Take Two show, one of Australia's most esteemed senior business journalists. He's going to tell us stories about uh, some of the people that he's met over his 50-odd year career in journalism to date, including uh, Rupert Murdoch, who he's known since the mid-50s or first met in the mid-50s when he worked for him, uh, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, he worked in the White House Press Corps under the uh, in the Kennedy years. Just some amazing stories. I hope you enjoyed. Gary Barker coming up in a few moments. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. We have a legacy of freedom and privilege, which has been won by hard struggle, hasn't been given by from above. It's been won, but we have it, and we can use that uh, to help people who are suffering seriously uh, if we try. Well, the singularity is a future time which will be profoundly transformative, where the machine intelligence we're creating will be billions of times more powerful than our own biological intelligence. Well, I ask you, what's next for Robert Scoble? What do you think you're going to be doing three, four years from now? Oh, geez. Uh, well, hopefully uh, we've, we'll have a successful launch of Longhorn. I, I want to stick around for my, with Microsoft for at least four more years. Around what I call the because effect rather than the with effect. In other words, I can make more money because of my blog than with Anything my blog. of this magnitude only happens because enormous numbers of people want it to happen and are willing to commit time and energy and money. I'm just going to do a quick intro. Uh, g'day, well, this is Cameron. I'm sitting in uh, Cafe Panetta in South Melbourne, where I like to go. And um, I'm chatting with a uh, veteran Melbourne journalist and uh, recent uh, TPN podcaster, Gary Barker. And he's sort of interviewing me, and I'm interviewing him. We're doing a joint interview, but we're just talking about Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> and I'm just kidding. Gary's saying he's known Rupert since 1955. We're talking Rupert Murdoch stories. Yeah, I... There, there are dozens of them. I mean, the, the chief sub who finds his front page suddenly remade because Rupert's a very hands-on person. But one of the things that impressed me about what I call Murdoch's mastery of the situation and mastery of the industry and his vision, I was talking to him, I was running a suburban group at the time, and we were putting in new offset presses. And I happened to say to him, you know, the difference between uh, lithography and offset. And for the next 10 minutes, he'd reeled off figures about the profitability, the print run, the return on investment, and all the rest of it, straight off the top of his head, standing up with a glass of wine in the boardroom, dining room, the board dining room of the Herald and Weekly Times, and I absorbed all this, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Then I thought, I wonder if he was bullshitting. So I went and I checked, and he was absolutely right. So that the man does understand the industry from the ground up. He understands what the detail is of whether offset is more profitable than than lithography. Uh, he un- and I think he's got a tremendous uh, vision. A bit, I mean, I wouldn't relate him to Steve Jobs, but Jobs is a similar sort of person. Can be very awkward. My favourite story about Steve Jobs is in a hotel room in Tokyo. I 
had a one-on-one -on -one interview with him and um, I was invited up by the uh, the minder into this enormous suite in the uh, new Atani hotel. I got it was bigger than my house, this hotel room. And Jobs was sitting at a bench along the wall with a big cinema display screen in front of him and he was playing with a new font that, they'd that Apple had introduced and Apple was thinking about using it for its documents. And he was typing the names of his children, which I happened to know. So I made some remark about, hey, you know, see you miss your kids. And we talked for maybe two or three minutes about his attachment to his family, which is very strong. And then we settled down to the professional interview. But I'd come in the door as a reporter, and I consider once I'm in the door, I'm a reporter. So I happened to use the bit about his children, and about uh, two days later I got an email from uh, the minder saying that Steve considered I had been intrusive for mentioning his children. So yeah, he's a very private person. Rupert, possibly, Rupert also would not entertain uh, too many questions about his divorce and those those sorts of things so uh, it's an aspect of power you don't have to be um, you know you don't have to answer all the questions my favorite story about steve jobs <clears throat> don't know if i've told you this but in um june 2005 um at Macworld or something like that um steve made an announcement that the next version of itunes 4.9 i think it was was going to have um podcasting support in it and I spent the next day or so trying to figure out, well, how do we get our podcasts into it, um, into the directory, and couldn't see anything on Apple's website. So I, on, on my blog, I made this blog post. Anyone know how you get your podcasts into Apple's upcoming iTunes? And uh, this is at night time. I wake up the next morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, check my email. Number one email at the top there from sjobs at apple.com was... Uh, actually, was it... Yeah, I think it was yeah, sjobs at apple.com. Uh, Cameron, uh, regarding getting your podcast into iTunes, you need to speak to so-and-so. Here's his email address. Uh, regards, Steve. And I thought, no, fucking bullshit. So I rang my IT guy and I said, um, you reckon this is real? And he said, hold on, I'll, I'll check the... Um, I'll check the logs of that blog post. And sure enough, it ran about the same. Just before this email was shot off in the header, there was uh, an Apple IP address that hit uh, the, lo the, the server, you know, that looked at this blog page. So I forwarded the email to the contact at Apple and said, look, I don't know if this is real or not, but... And I get an email back a few minutes later going, oh, yeah, that was real, and uh, here's what we do, you know. And I thought, shit, I mean, what kind of guy is this that either is personally keeping an eye on what's being said out there or has somebody doing it for him but would, you know, get involved in some pissant podcaster's question about podcast support and iTunes. I mean, it's an incredible... Yeah, pay attention to detail, but, I mean, it's not pissant when you think about what Jobs wanted to do with iTunes. And he understood the, whether he'd defined it or not, but I swear he understood the power of the podcast. He under, he's always understood the power of the internet. If you look at how Apple has built itself and increasingly is building itself, the, the iPod Touch, it's an iPod. 
it's actually an iPhone without the phone. It's the next step up. Got Wi-Fi. Now that's fascinating. That because again and again and again, where you look at the developments that Apple has built, uh, where it's all gone, it's all about what you were talking to me earlier about about building a community for Apple Inc. and using the internet. They, Apple, I think, uses the internet much better than any other major company. Much better than Microsoft, for example. Microsoft tends to be... Um, it uses it, it does a good job, but it tends to have less flair about the way it does it. It's more corporate. Microsoft just has less flair, full stop, outside of the Windows 95 launch and the Xbox. Uh, they just don't get flair. No, well, the Zoom now, in my view, is walking dead. I don't think we're ever going to see it. What, what, I mean, you're, you're a technology journalist. I mean, what, what was it about the Zoom that just died in the arse so badly? It's got Wi-Fi or, or it's got some sort of wireless. It's only point-to-point, device-to-device wireless, I think. But how do, how do they screw up something that bad? Um, the first Zoom was brown. <laughs> And I think that it's that that tells you that they had no idea about industrial design, no idea about the audience that they were aiming at. I, I can remember years and years ago in New York, I bought a brown suit and I went to lunch with a mate of mine and he looked at me and he said, you do know that brown as a colour isn't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I feel sorry. I mean, Microsoft, you know, has done so many great things, but they're just so klutzy. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get the image out of my mind that they, it doesn't reflect the style of Bill. I mean, Bill is just, you know, the daggiest guy on the planet, and Microsoft is a very daggy company nine times out of ten when they try and do this kind of stuff. You know, with, apart from Windows 95 and the Xbox and the Halo, they do great launches. You know, Jay, but it's more to do with the guys that are running those things. I think, you know, uh, Jay Allard's a, you know, fairly good marketer. Part of the problem, I think, is it's just simply the size of Microsoft, and they've probably got too many human resources people. (laughs) You know, everything's very corporate. Um, And sure, Apple is enormously corporate. Apple is very secretive. Yes. You know, try and get into their commissary and get a, a get a salad. It's hopeless. Yeah. But um, their their public persona is of, you know, um, turtleneck sweaters and geeks and guys sitting around. Cool geeks though. Cool geeks. Very, very yeah, cool. Yeah. Everything is cool. Yeah. And that's part of the part of this thing about Apple, it is certainly is cool. They make being a geek cool. Yes, they do. Which Microsoft doesn't. No, but then Microsoft, you know, what would happen to Microsoft if suddenly it turned up in sneakers and, and jeans? Um, it, it would be, you know, how would the corporate, it, I mean, it's real market is corporate. It is, yeah. That's, the, you know, and their the revenues reflect the fact that they're not cool, but they make a lot of money. Yeah. Obscene amounts of money still. It's not, it's not slowing down despite, you know, their lack of coolness out there and the competition that they've got in. You know, they're still their profits are up around what fifteen billion dollars a year. I think the last time I looked, just obscene amounts of money. Anyway, let's talk about you. Okay. So, um, we were talking a couple of weeks ago, and a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about. 
One is Vietnam, because I, in fact, I got in a, I got in a bit of trouble on Twitter the other day because there was all the stuff about the Kokoda thing. It's going back even further. I imagine you weren't at Kokoda. No, I didn't. You, you, you don't go back that not, far. Not that far. <laughs> but um, I said I don't get Kokoda. I don't get the big deal that gets made in this country about Kokoda. I, I have a I have a big issue with the glorif- what I perceive as the glorification of Australia's handful of military-based successes. And I'm a big fan of military success, but Gallipoli... Well, Gallipoli wasn't a success. No, Kikoda, I don't think Kokoda was really a success either in the end, but we, we had... Um, Anyway, but we were talking about Vietnam, and you, you talked about your time. You were telling me a bit about your time in Vietnam, and I said I don't really understand Vietnam. Well, but the other thing I want to, I want to start with though is you met Che Guevara. You were telling me the story about meeting Che Guevara, and I'm going through this whole Castro Cuba period at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I'm fascinated by Castro, but also Che Guevara is you know incredibly. Uh, fascinating character mm. obviously didn't live really as long and maybe that has added to some of his uh, aura but yeah. tell, tell, tell the folks about when you met Che Guevara what year was it? That would have been 1960, uh, 1962 and you were in Havana? I was in Havana as I a journalist? as a journalist yeah, I, I was based in New York at the time who were I, you working for? The Melbourne Herald Herald and Weekly Times you were the New York correspondent? I was one of three in New York. I mean, the grand old days when newspapers were very rich and they could afford foreign bureaus. Um, at that time, um, the Melbourne Herald had something like um, eight or nine people plus locally hired in London. We had three in New York. Um, on it went. So I'd gone down to Havana to uh, look at, try and meet Castro, meet Castro which I did. And, and Guevara, and you put all this stuff into the um, these goons that were running the show. And around about midnight, I was picked up by um, a Chevrolet of some age and taken to the Banco Nacional, which was um, where Guevara had his office, and taken upstairs to the office of Il Presidente. Huge room, massive mahogany desk. Behind it was Guevara in his denims and his jungle greens and his beret on his head. Absolutely blank desk, except for a 9mm Browning pistol sitting in the middle of a blotter. Sat down, began this sort of fairly diffident interview. Um, With a translator, or was he speaking English? He spoke English, yeah. yeah. Um, And... um, as he talked, he spun the Browning. And I know a little bit about guns, and I noticed that the safety catch on the Browning was off. And he spun it around flat on the desk in front of me, and every time it pointed at me, he smiled. <laughs> as if to say? Yeah, as if to say, well, yeah, I got you really, haven't I? <laughs> Just watch it. Yeah. yeah. You didn't bring up his kids' names in that interview, did you? Uh, no, no, I didn't. I wasn't aware. Yeah. I mean, after that, you know, Steve Jobs saying that you're intrusive really doesn't amount to much when you've had Che Guevara spinning a pistol in your direction. Yeah, no, not really. I mean, you mean a lot of other things. But Castro was interesting too. He, his capacity for, for speech is, was then uh, probably I don't know it is now, but. He would talk for three, four, five hours on television and the whole of Cuba would stop and listen to him and there would be people sitting down 
on the floor of the TV studio and he would be talking about the United States and talking about the future of, um, of Cuba such as it was, um, such as it will ever be. Um, but it was a very interesting time. I'd gone there because uh, the mainland Chinese and the Russians had begun to appear in Cuba. And the Americans, of course, were getting very excited about this. And you might remember there was a lot of worry that the Russians were establishing missile bases in Cuba. And I think probably they were. And one of the people I met in uh, my hotel uh, was a Russian who was very talkative, particularly after he'd had between 1 and 17 vodkas. And he got a bit talkative um, and talked about the Russian presence and how Russia saw Cuba as a great ally and, and wasn't it close to the United States and things like that. Uh, and I wrote that story and the next morning I was deported. Well, I was arrested, held for a bit, and then I was deported. Back to the US? Back to the US, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, but Cuba was the US. I mean, that's part of the, the, the reason for their whole anti-Castro basis, really. I mean, until Batista left, it was a US protectorate for, what, 50, 60 years, since 1898, when they kicked the Spanish out, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, Batista was an American protectorate, really. The United Fruit Company... Um, I'm not sure which was worse, the United Fruit Company or, or Batista. Um, but the United Fruit Company kept Batista. He was their front man, and they they basically enslaved the population. And he, he was a military guy. It was it was a military-based run, you know, dictatorship, essentially, that was funded and supported by America. Yeah, that's exactly right. And all on the basis of pineapples and bananas. Yeah, cheap, cheap sugar and cheap fruit yeah. going back into the U.S. That's right, yeah. yeah. And so they got their noses out of joint when, uh, when Castro turned up. Um, whether, if you look at in terms of human terms, whether Castro was any less ruthless than Batista, I'm not too sure. Uh, I can remember one of the people I met in the, these interminable television interviews, uh, or television harangues that Castro did, was an American called Murphy who'd been with um, Castro in the Sierra Madre. Um, now, Murphy's an interesting study, and I don't know very much about him. I met him once sitting on the floor in the studio. Um, some say he was a gun runner. Some say he was a CIA operative. But he was certainly with Castro. Um, the story that he was a CIA informer got so strong that Castro had him executed. Now, this is a guy who'd walked with Castro all the way through the revolutionary bit, um, but Castro still executed him. So, you know, if you're going to be boss, be boss. Well, yeah, and, you know, he's being boss, and he's also being boss against incredible opposition from the United States. Over 50 years, he survived their attempts to get rid of him. And certainly, when you look at the statistics in terms of the... Uh, uh, birth mortality rate, the the uh, education rate, the, the health care that they have, the agrarian reform that he's done. Certainly the people of Cuba, generally speaking, seem to be much better off, even after 50 years of economic sanctions by the US and their allies. Uh, you know, they've, they've enjoying a much higher standard of opportunity and freedom, even in a communist regime, than they did in the US protected Batista era where the people were basically chattel. You know, really. Yeah, I think that's true. And it, it was 
part of the American attitude. I remember the the aeroplane I went into um, Havana on. There was a bunch of three or four American rednecks who spent the time drinking bourbon on the aeroplane and telling one another about how, what a good time they were going to have in the Havana whorehouses. Um, they were drunk when they arrived and they got picked up by the Cuban police, which rather took the shine off what they figured they were going to do. But This is obviously before it became illegal for Americans to travel to yeah. Cuba. When did, that, when did that happen? After Bay of Pigs? After the Bay of Pigs, I think it was, yeah. Were you there during Bay of Pigs? No, I wasn't. No, I, I left and I... In fact, oh, you even signed before that. Yeah. yeah, I deported before that, and then I was in Vietnam. So, um, yeah, the Americans sort of used it as a playground. They used it much as the United Fruit Company did. I mean, these were just people, chattels, and I don't know there was very much understanding of what went on in Cuba. Just went down there, got drunk. Went to the whole houses and went home. Went again. to the casinos. Went to the casinos. After your run casinos. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about communism if we can, because this is something I don't understand. And to go back to Kokoda. I was talking to some people on Twitter about Kokoda the other day, and um, they were saying, well, you know, uh, our brave soldiers, you know, went to Papua New Guinea to keep the Japanese out. And I was like, well, let's hold on a minute. If the Japanese had invaded Australia and taken over Australia, what's the worst that could have happened? We'd all be driving Japanese cars and eating sushi today. Oh, hold on, we are driving <laughs> Japanese cars and eating sushi. What if the Germans had invaded? We'd all be driving BMW. Oh, wait, I do drive a BMW. Yeah. I mean, explain if you can. I mean, Vietnam and the whole... What I really don't understand, and I've read Nixon's memoirs, I've read a lot of stuff from the Cold War era. I don't understand the fear of communism. I don't understand what they were scared about and, and why it was worth taking the human race to the brink of mutually assured destruction to fight off communism. Can you explain what the red fear was all about? It, I think it was just fear. I mean, it was sort of Michigan State University politics, you know, stage one. I mean, you might remember, maybe you're younger than me, um, the domino theory. You know, okay, we're going to you you yep. you uh, save Vietnam by destroying it because if you don't, it'll topple over, taking Thailand, then Malaysia, and then Singapore, and then we're in trouble. And then but, Indonesia. But we're in trouble from what exactly? Well, this miasma of but, of what? Uh, so America could become a communist country. No economic domination. It's it going to happen anyway. I mean, think about China. China's all, yeah, yeah, yeah. They delayed it by forty years. 40 yeah, but I mean, if you thought about the domino theory, which so very many alleged experts accepted, why would that be? Because Vietnam in the north is, was then largely Catholic, the south is Buddhist, Thailand's Buddhist, Malaysia is, is Islamic, is Muslim. What common cause would Buddhism have with Islam? Why would it? Why would the dominoes fall over? You know, communism has never really worked. There's been a little bit of communist activity in Malaya, but not a lot. And that was among the Chinese, not among the, the Malays. Um, it was something, you know, I, I, the communist threat. Remember, of course, we'd come out of a war, Second World War, where it, where it had been fairly clear-cut between democracy and fascism. And then you had the rise of the Soviet Union, 
and the formation of NATO, and it was the formation of NATO or the French attitude to NATO, the formation of NATO that actually caused the Vietnam War. So, because Ho Chi Minh had in fact, Ho Chi, I've always seen Ho Chi Minh as a nationalist. He wasn't a communist during the Japanese War because he he and the and the Viet Minh fought with the American OSS against the Japanese. So that when when the war was over, the Japanese were defeated, and the Americans began to be seriously consumed by what they saw as the threat of the Soviet Union, both economically and militarily. Um, France saw its opportunity and de Gaulle said to the Americans well NATO we're not dead keen on NATO but what we really are interested in is restoration of the French Empire that included the Michelin rubber plantations in Vietnam Ho Chi Minh said according to um, an interview I read once with Dean Rusk Secretary of State at the time Ho Chi Minh sent eight emissaries to America, the State Department to the White House, pleading with the Americans not to let the French to dissuade the French from going back into Vietnam because, he said, if they attempted to take control again we will fight them, which he did. But because the Americans were so consumed about the Soviet Union and trying to build NATO, they went along with the French where could then Ho Chi Minh go for his material, his guns and ammunition? He had to go to China and Russia. Then immediately he became a communist. He had to. Kind of like Castro, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you're going to, if you're one of the biggest military and, uh, and economies in the world, nations in the world, and you want to take, pick a fight with a small island in the Caribbean, who can he turn to for support? Right. Russia. Right? Yeah. He ha it's indeed, he had to do that. Um, you know, he couldn't sell his sugar anywhere else, so you have to live. Would have made far more sense to have embraced Cuba and, and done what George Marshall did at the end of the Second World War. Built Germany up again. Don't, don't do what they did after the First World War and crush it to the point where a postage stamp cost 10, 10 million marks. And the Versailles Treaty pisses yeah. off them so much that a Hitler rises up afterwards. Exactly. So, that, you know, for every action there's a reaction equal and opposite and that's what happened to us and that's why we had the Second World War. Really, why we had the Vietnam War was because the French, de Gaulle, wanted to... Re he knew that, you know, the French had acted like assholes during the parts of the Second World War, despite very, very many of them doing enormously brave things and supporting the Allies, but they had, in fact, caved in. Restore the honour of La Belle France by restoring the Empire. I mean, hey, hang on. It wasn't very sensible in 1950. So the Americans actually supported the restoration of French imperialism by allowing him to march into Vietnam and okay. not saying, no, no, back off, son. Hmm. They could have told him back off. The result would have been the French would have probably tried to torpedo NATO, but they did anyway, so what the heck? You know, they would have been far better off to have supported Ho Chi Minh in, in, in a national government <clears throat> now bear in mind that's a bit complicated as well because what we call North Vietnam and, and South Vietnam have never actually seen eye to eye. They've basically been warring 
because they're ethnically different, been warring for 2,000 years. And I think very possible they'll do it again. Right. But, you know... Sounds like Iraq, right? Yeah, a little bit like that. <laughs> now, this is a human race with its pants down. Well, I mean, let's talk about the analogies between Vietnam and Iraq, which you hear a lot about in the US, obviously, at the moment, and, and how this is you know, going to be another war that they can't get out of, at least honourably. Mm. Uh, do you think that the analogies at that level are similar, and do you think that Vietnam was based on genuine political rationale or was, as a lot of people, you know, people like me may be overly cynical, but we look at Iraq and I look at all of the justifications of the Iraq invasion by the US and their allies in 2003 and see it as putting lipstick on a pig. I mean, it had, as far as I'm concerned, it had nothing to do with anything else other than we want to take what they've got, basically. We want to shore up, with, uh, you know, our level of control over OPEC for the next 10, 20 years and we, to do that we need to have a bigger military presence in the middle, middle East and we need to control oil production or have puppets, puppet you know, governments in place that will do what we tell them to do and obviously Saddam wasn't playing along anymore as he had during the well, 80s. Yeah, he, I mean he was doing worse than not playing along, he was invading Kuwait. That was one of the other things. Um, yeah, I, the, the parallels between Vietnam and, and Iraq are there if you want to see them. Um, I think the motivation was a bit different between the two of them. One was purely, purely political, more political Vietnam. And I don't disagree with you on oil with uh, Iraq. In both cases, though, we're going to get a similar result, which is certainly in, in Vietnam, uh, I don't see that the U.S. Army lost the war. The politicians in Washington gave it away. And I think we're in the process of seeing exactly that again. The U.S. Army, you know, and I've walked around a bit with it, um, it was much safer to walk around Vietnam uh, in 1970 than it was in 1963 because the army, <coughs> the US army, um, had pacified a lot of it. Uh, and the same thing I think could happen in Iraq, although the Iraqis are a different kettle of fish. <coughs> They're much less um, rational, if you like. I heard the, I was uh, watching John Stewart yesterday, and I think Petraeus was saying car bombings are down from sort of uh, fifteen hundred uh, deaths from car bombings are down from fifteen hundred a month to twelve hundred a month or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's um, you know, it's like counting blocks of cornflakes, really. But, I mean, the point is then, or a point, is um, what are these people like when nobody's around anyway? Were they, what were they doing? And they were killing one another. But they weren't when Saddam was in control. No, that's right, because he kept locking them up. And well, yeah, them. but they were, they were terrified. I mean, yeah, they were terrified, you know. And that maybe is the answer. Democracy doesn't actually fit everybody. That is an interesting point, isn't it? Mm. Democracy... And, you know, we're seeing that the U.S. version of you know, capitalist democracy is actually doing a lot of damage to the planet at the moment. Corporations, I mean, there's a lot of people, a growing number of people, I think, today, and I'm one of them, who, whereas 10 years ago, was completely, I considered myself you know, right-wing, laissez-faire capitalist, I now look at what corporations and capitalist governments are doing to the planet in terms of uh, not only what corporations are doing from a climate change perspective, 
perspective, but also the refusal of our 